Hello and welcome to another edition of the Political Party Replay series, this with Tony Blair. This is from 2015, uh, November 2015, and this was the first time that Tony Blair appeared on the show, and the only time that he's appeared on it live. And as you can imagine, the show at that point had existed for, I think, a couple of years, and... The running joke, I guess, there'd been a slight running joke about whether he would ever come on and obviously just about my own politics. On the night, as you can imagine, in a cabaret bar in London, so this used to be recorded at the St. James Theatre, which is now, I think, called The Other Palace and is down by Buckingham Palace in Victoria. And I couldn't announce who it was. And it was a cabaret bar. If you ever went, you will know it had this great conspiratorial, low-lit atmosphere to it. And it, because of the balcony, it felt like the place had a low ceiling. And it was low-lit. And this was the first time I'd ever been not able to announce who it was. Obviously, for security reasons. And on the night, I remember, I would occasionally just tilt my ear in um, to the room and um, just listen to the hubbub. I remember hearing someone saying, it can't be anyone any decent. It better be some backbencher. And then people spotted that Cherie Blair was there. And you could hear people going, do you think it's going to be Tony Blair? But I didn't confirm it until I went on and announced his name. And I remember seeing a guy in the second row mouth the words, fucking hell, it's Tony Blair. Or something like that. Maybe it was holy fucking shit. But I remember seeing him just F to himself. And, um, well... In this interview, Tony Blair demonstrates why he is such a talented and rare politician and why he's so funny and interesting in the lot. I mean, this is... You don't need me to tell you that if Tony Blair's on the show, uh, he did... <laughs> he was he was a great performer and it was a great night. So um, I'm replaying these, in case you don't know, because uh, I'm off for a bit. I'm in hospital. I've recorded these in advance. You might be thinking, oh, my, he sounds absolutely fine. Um, so I've, I've handpicked these in advance. Um, Thank you for all the messages you've been sending. Even though I'm recording this in advance, I'm just so touched by how many of you got in touch. But enough about that. This isn't about me. This is about November 2015 and a man called Tony Blair. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you all for coming down uh, for the last show uh, of the year. Um, We've had guests from across uh, the political spectrum here, and they've always been received uh, with dignity, so I hope that uh, applies tonight. Um, uh, I'm cool. I'm really cool. I'm cool. I'm cool. It's just any other night. Just any other night. It's just any other night. I don't really, I just sort of want to, I don't want to, you know, not give an intro. I need to, I need to give a proper intro. Um, we've had people at the start of their career, we've had people towards the end, uh, and tonight we have someone who, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> someone who's had an amazing career. Ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't guessed it already, um, I hope you really enjoy this, because this is a very special treat. Without a doubt, the most successful leader in the Labour Party's history. Yeah. Prime Minister of this country. <laughs> Thank you very much. You must have forgotten who I am. <laughs> anyway, um, 
Well, Tony, thank you very much for coming down. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, pleasure to be here. We were talking about um, Prime Minister's question time and uh, the autumn statement today. Um, was Prime Minister's question time something you ever... Was it something you enjoyed? No. <laughs> <laughs> what, as Prime Minister or as Leader of the Opposition or, or both? As, neither. It was the most um, nerve-wracking thing you ever did because you were, you were literally... You were on the at-risk register for 15, <laughs> to 30 minutes. And, uh, you know, I, I never got more nervous than before I was doing it. So in the mornings, I, I used to, I, I would, you just get up with this sort of nervous, sense of nervous anxiety. And then the clock would just move slowly. So first of all, in Downing Street, move slowly. Then you go to the House of Commons. You used to get there about 11.30. There's a room behind the House of Commons chamber where you'd go and sit. And it was like the sort of, you know, the room just by the execution <laughs> chamber. And you go in there and you just wait until at three minutes to 12, my, uh, the par private secretary, member of parliament, used to sort of look after the prime minister. He would always come into my room and he'd throw the doors open theatrically and say, prime minister, a grateful nation awaits you. <laughs> you go down and then you just have to gear yourself up. But you always seemed fairly pumped up for it. Like, as far as modern uh, exponents of Prime question times go, you always seemed fairly in command of it. It never seemed to daunt you. I mean, when you look at some of the people that have followed you, both on the government and the <laughs> opposition side, I mean, how do you rate some of their performances? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't really... <laughs> I mean, to, to be frank, I've only got sympathy for anyone doing it. So no matter what I feel about anybody who's doing it, when I'm looking at them doing it, whether the leader of the opposition or the prime minister, I'm thinking, God, that's not me. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was really tough. But I, I learned, it was funny, I learned things to do to try and make it get better, as it were, okay? So um, one of the things that, I mean, sorry, it's more than you need to know, really, but so in the morning... Because you were so nervous, if you weren't careful, you didn't eat. And if you didn't eat, your energy levels would fall. And so you go in at midday, and actually these, these types of jousts, you know, when you're really under pressure like that, they're quite, you, you, it requires a lot of energy. So if you weren't careful, you know, the first 10 minutes might be okay, and then the last 20 would be a disaster. So I ended up having to make myself eat properly in the morning, and then I would have a, a banana just before I go into the chamber. Yeah, I know, well, there it is. <laughs> but actually, it would make a difference. It would, it would make a difference, because you would then, you could just keep that energy going yeah. um, until, you, until you escaped. But, uh, um, but, I mean, it was just... And the, the amazing thing about it was that it didn't... You know, you could go in there thinking, today's going to be easy. And then you come out half an hour later. And, you know, my staff were, were not of the yes, men or women variety. Mm. So, you know, the kindest of them would say, uh, "Well, that 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 um, that, uh, that 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 wasn't uh, that wasn't too bad." <laughs> and the others would say, "That was real shit." <laughs> um, but it was, it was, uh, yeah, no, it was. Uh, it, it's still even now, uh, a few minutes before twelve, wherever I am in the world today, like you know, <laughs> today on a Wednesday, I get a little chill at the back of the neck. Have a banana and. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that type of thing. <laughs> I'll do similar things with Greg's pasties before gigs. Sort of, <laughs> yeah, that's with the sort of nutrition that I need. Um, 
In terms of some of the, because I went to see Promises Question Time quite a few times when you did it, and I always thought William Hague was the the best adversary you had across there. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, he was very, very good. He he used to. In fact, what I tried to always do was work out what was the central strength and central weakness of your your opponent. So you you've got to kind of focus on that. Um, and the fact is, he was very quick and very funny, very sharp. And I, in the end, had to try and turn that against him by saying the guy can make jokes, but he can't make the judgments, right? So you just have to try and work out how you make him inhibited <laughs> from, from making the jokes in the chamber. It didn't always work, to be honest, but because um, he, he was very good. But I remember one time when I was doing the statement, we, we, had this, this idea, we had this idea for a time that we would, in the interest of government transparency, I mean, that... Those concepts didn't last long, but, <laughs> but in the interest, you know, this was in the utopian idealism phase of the government. So, so we're going to be transparent about this. So we're going to publish all the great things the government's done in the last year. And so we put out this, this, this document with, uh, with all these great achievements. You know, we've built this, we've just done that, we've given this, and, you know. And um, so he gets up and he says to me... Um, I notice on, I notice on page twenty-two, um, one of your achievements is the building of the Sheffield Community Centre at such and such. I said, where is it? Because <laughs> <laughs> I have some people go around there today and they can't find it. <laughs> and they just sat down, you know. So you, how is? Well. Uh, <laughs> you know, there was that, at that point you sort of look at the box, you know, the civil servants' box over there, and they're all like, mm. <laughs> yeah, so that wasn't good. I remember re I read an interview with him recently where he said you would have a folder that was listed alphabetically, and he would deliberately ask you questions at different ends of the alphabet. So he said, I'd ask my first question on drugs, the second question on zoos. <laughs> <laughs> Getting sort of deliberately flicked through, is that true? I don't know. <laughs> I think, um, no, his, 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 his quality was the, you know, really sharp wit. So you said you, you would assess the strengths and weaknesses of the people you're up against. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's just go through some of the people that have done it since. So. Uh, <laughs> no, they're all very strong and very good. <laughs> That's all I want to say. So what would you say David Cameron's strengths and weaknesses are at the dispatch box? Um, actually, at the beginning, when I was Prime Minister, he was leader of the opposition, and they were shifting their positions a lot. We were able to pin quite a lot on, on the Tories as sort of flip-flopping and so on. But I don't... I, I don't I'm, I'm going <laughs> to circumvent this question by saying I don't watch it a lot now. <laughs> well... I do. Yes. <laughs> By the way, is it, I haven't seen you do a, a David Cameron impression. No, no, no. I don't think that's true. You know, I, I think... <laughs> yeah, they, he's got the braying Cameron where he goes, come on, Mr. Speaker, they've gone, frankly, from FFA, full fiscal autonomy, to FFS, full fiscal shambles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How does it feel, though? Because a lot of people say he's the heir to Blair. How do you feel when people start describing him as that? Um, I don't know, really. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> the, the most important thing is whether 
if you've done something that you think is right in government and someone tries to emulate it, you usually think that's, that's good rather than bad. Um, and look, there is a certain, one of the things that is difficult for people to understand about politics today where political parties tend to get more partisan as actually the, the market ideas in politics gets, crosses the boundaries far more. So I don't think it's bad or wrong if there are certain things that one government of one particular color does and another government takes them on or develops them. In fact, it would be actually unfortunate for the country if you just got a violent change of direction every time a new government comes in. And so when we came in, you know, very deliberately, we kept some of the conservative reforms, but we changed other things. You know, and I think that's a better rhythm for, for government. And he does that in some of the reforms that have been made and some of the positions. Do you think that's a, a popular view in the Labour Party at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> well, not, <laughs> not, not thunderously, no. Uh, um, no, but, but there it is. I mean, it's, it's yeah, there it is, in fact. <laughs> I've got to ask you about Corbyn, because it, it strikes me as you're two sort of diametrically opposed politicians. Although in one regard, you're both known for being courteous and, and decent. Um, apart from that, there's, there's very little you have in common. And I was struck by the photo of you both at the Cenotaph the other, the other weekend. And I just thought, when you're in a position like that, when you're so close to someone that has almost become an adversary... Adversary. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just self-edit. it. Um, did you have any small talk with him? Did you go, right? Well, you don't really at the Cenotaph, I no. mean, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, no, look, it's a... Yeah, fair point, actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, no, look, it's a different... It's, there's a concept of the Labour Party as an instrument of government, and my ambition was always to take the Labour Party. It never won two consecutive full terms before. And my view is if you want to be a government that really changes the country, you've got to govern for a prolonged period of time. Um, so the ambition was always not just to get into government and win one term in order to give the Tories a rest from, <laughs> give them a breather from governing, but actually to get into power and establish ourselves as a credible party of government. And, you know, where, I mean, Jeremy all through that time obviously was a, was a backbencher, but he was a backbencher in a sense who didn't want to become a, a frontbencher, which is perfectly fair enough, but it's a different type of politics. It doesn't mean to say he believes or I believe in the aims of the Labour Party any less, but it's, it's if, you, if you believe that the, that the Labour Party was created as an instrument of government, then you need to adopt the positions and the strategy to put you in government. Because a lot of people at the moment seem to think that is a fundamental compromise of what the Labour Party actually is. And that's, that seems to be a major problem for the Labour Party at the moment. Well, I've never understood this, this notion that you compromise your principles if you seek power to implement them. Um, because, frankly, without implementing them, and you have to have power to do that, then what are they? I mean, they're just empty sentiment. So, you know, you can, you can say it's terrible the Tories are doing this and cutting that, and, you know, they're not empowering these people and they're grinding down those people. But if you don't have the, the discipline and the, you know, the, the imagination, the creativity to get yourself in the position where you can win an election and govern the country, then you can't do anything. So, you know, when we were in government and put a massive amount of public investment into public services, we did reforms as well there, we did things like the minimum wage. I was just reflecting the other day on international development and the fact that we 
created the Department of International Development, probably the biggest thought leader today in development worldwide. And you see amazing work being done by the UK and the UK government in, in Africa and the poorest parts of the world as a result. But you can't do any of that unless you're in power. So I was never, it always used to frustrate me in, in the Labour Party in the 80s when, you know, people would kind of say, well, let's pass another resolution about that. And I'd say, yeah, fine, but I mean, you know, <laughs> it doesn't actually affect anything. And it, I, I remember when I first took over leader, the leadership of the Labour Party and I just, I went to one of my, in fact, I think it was actually in the leadership campaign, I went to a party meeting and uh, someone got up and, and she said to me, um, you know, this was after we lost another election, and she said to me, uh, you know, Tony, the, the British people have voted against the Labour Party now four times in a row. What on earth is wrong with them? How is Claire Shaw? So... Um, <laughs> Uh, um, I don't know, really, but it, so tonight it was, it was, it's always frustrated me, this, this, this idea, because if you don't, you see, because actually getting into power is not easy, right, and you've got to have discipline, and you've got to have focus, and you, and you do have to have the imagination and the vision to be able to create a really strong political coalition in the country, because, you know, it's always, I mean, I remember when I was growing up in the Labour Party in the, in the um, late 70s and, and early 80s, when, you know, back then uh, you had this huge sort of ultra-left tide in the Labour Party. And, you know, I always think the best educators in life are failure and humiliation. Um, you know, you learn far more from those than you ever do from your, your successes. But I remember going out to Canvas in Hackney, because the Hackney Labour Party, we started this great campaign at the time about um, um, Hackney becoming a nuclear weapons-free zone. A pledge delivered. You better get to know all this, because that's... <laughs> yes, that's where we're going, but anyway. <laughs> and I remember knocking on this door, and Hackney just comes to my life, says, yeah? And I said, um, I'm here from the, the Hackney Labour Party and, um, you know, we're, we're campaigning for a, a nuclear-free Hackney. <laughs> Come in here, son. Come in here. <laughs> she takes me in and she shows me this whole lot of sort of rat droppings, frankly, around the, the floor. And she says, I've got rats in here. You get rid of my rats, I'll get rid of your nuclear weapons. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of shuffled out, but uh, <laughs> but you know, so so but that, the whole idea at that, that time was that it didn't really matter if you won power or not. What mattered was that you you know you you, you kind of felt good about what you were saying about the Tories. But it, that was always for me very unsatisfying, and also um, in a way. It, it, you know, you felt a betrayal of the people you were trying to help um, because you just sat there in, in opposition impotently as others made changes. But what do you say to those people on the left and, and a lot of those sort of soft Labour members who did vote for Jeremy Corbyn who said that's all well and good, happy to sort of be in power, but for some people perhaps they felt that New Labour compromised too much in order to, to, to find power. Perhaps some of your harsher critics might say for its own sake. Yeah, but I think, you see... 
the whole idea about you sacrifice your principle to get into power, that you, if, if you're in that mindset, you're in the wrong place, really. Because the reason why I thought it was important we didn't just put money into public services but reform them was not as a compromise of my principles, but as a means of implementing my principles. So for me, the fact that there weren't enough good London schools people to send their kids to, that meant that those people who could afford to could send them privately, and those people who couldn't had to put up with crap education. Now, the biggest social injustice you can give a child is a poor education in today's world. So if you're not, you know, if you don't, if you're not also prepared to accept that that school's baton has got to be changed and there's got to be reform, then you're not in the serious business of changing people's lives. And that's not a compromise of your principles, because uh, otherwise you confuse principles with policies that may have been applicable at one stage of development but have to be adjusted and amended for, for another stage. So in the post-1945 Labour government, everyone thought at that time, well, the state is the repository of people's hopes and the state will take care of you. But the world in which you live today, people are much more assertive. They want power in their own hands. And the purpose of the state should be strategic and empowering, not controlling. Now, that's not, I don't regard that as a compromise with the principle of social justice. I just think it's a better way of getting there. So using technology. So perhaps, you know, to sum it up in a phrase, sort of, you know, socialism with iPads. No, I, 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 I read that. And actually, there were bits of that speech, in fact, that were, um, the, the John McDonald speech, that were quite interesting. And I can see, you know, where he's trying to get to with it. But, you know, the whole point about the technology is that it puts power in the hands of individuals. So when you're saying, for example, that you may be able to change the way children are educated through technology, or you're able to say, right, we can transform how we do diagnosis within the health service through technology, that is not just you know, ordering the machines, it's also changing the way of working, right? It may be changing the structure of how you deliver healthcare. And sometimes that will mean saying to some of the, the producer interests within these services, well, we want, in the interests of the consumer of the, of the service, the public, the patient or the pupil, we need to change the way that that's run. And so it's not enough to, to say, well, let's have socialism with iPads. It's not, you, what you need to do is to say, how can technology transform society, right? And how can we be the people who understand these changes that technology can bring about and are there to make them work for people? But that requires change and reform. It doesn't just require us to keep systems as they are. You know, in the work I do in different parts of the world, I'm always saying, you know, your presidents and prime ministers will say to you, you know, when are we going to get an education system or a healthcare system or a welfare system like, you know, the West? And I say, don't ask yourself that question. Say, given what we know today and the, what we know about the legacy of these Western systems, how can we use the advantages, for example, of technology to get to a different and better place in the way we develop our services? So this is, this is the... the Otherwise, what the left becomes is, is a, the left just becomes another form of conservatism, right? We're just not going to change. You know, that's the way it's being done, uh, maybe, but maybe it should be done differently. And in today's world where everybody in the way they live their lives is undergoing constant change and adjustment, you know, when I was growing up and, and in, in, the, in the very old days when I was growing up and, you know, people would get 
the same job and maybe hold it for 40 years and retire and it'll be a classic nine to five job. You tried your best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it wasn't quite good enough. Though. But the world's changed. I, you know, I, I accept the point you're saying. I mean, when do you have any sort of contact at all with Jeremy Corbyn or John McDonald? Do you ever bump into each other at things? And what's the relationship like if you do? <laughs> not, not really. No. Um, but, you know, look, I'm not... I don't... By the way, I never either bear a grudge or, or think that politics should descend to being personally unpleasant about people. And as you say, Jeremy Corbyn's a perfectly nice guy to me. It's just that there is a profound disagreement, um, both about what the purpose of the Labour Party is and, and um, how, how that purpose is, is implemented. What about the style of leadership, then? Because I think part of the reaction to Corbyn is the fact that in a sort of bizarre way, his lack of charisma has become an asset. Do you think that charisma is important for a leader, that personality matters? I think personality does matter, but I think charisma is an overdone concept in the sense that you can get leaders that are immensely effective that aren't, as you might say, classically charismatic. Um, you know, what's important for a leader to be able to do, and this is true whether you're a leader of a political party or a, a company or a community centre, um, or a football team. You know, you've got to be able to take decisions and to give people a sense of direction, and you've got to persuade people to follow. Um, and that's what it's about. Now, you know, people with what we classically call charisma can often do that, but I've known, you know, great leaders of, of, of businesses and and um, even countries who wouldn't have classic charisma in that way, but are incredibly effective. Because you had an interesting introduction to politics, didn't you? you? You arrived at it relatively late for someone who became a Prime Minister. And a lot of people know that you were in a band when you were at university called Ugly Rumours that involved you doing a, a Mick Jagger impression. Um, well, do you still ever do that at home? <laughs> um, only in the privacy of my own. <laughs> uh, no, no I, I, I always say, actually, that um, I was really lucky that social media didn't <laughs> exist at that time because the pictures, there are a few pictures and they're pretty bad, but the, um, the, the, the recordings would have finished me. <laughs> you know, was, um, but it wasn't just music, was it? You, well, what else was there? <laughs> but you did stand-up when you were at uni. I, d I did. <laughs> so what sort of stuff? <laughs> it, was, it was actually one of the great lessons I, I learned about um, at a number of different levels. So I, I did these reviews and, and in which I did stand-up. And, you know, they fitted into two categories, really. There was the first lot of them that were really dire. And then I did actually learn and got a bit better at it. But I, I'll never forget in a sort of, it was like a room like this and doing a, a stand-up routine like you were doing at the beginning, except with the absence of laughter. <laughs> <laughs> and dying. <laughs> terrible of death. And honestly, even today, I promise you, even today, I will just occasionally... <laughs> you know, it was just terrible. It was terrible, but I learned a number of things. So I learned with with material that you have, you've got to be really, you've got to be ruthless, right? Mm. 
you kind of quite, you quite like it, but you've tried it out and they haven't laughed. You talk to me. (laughs) 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 You know, it's great. They haven't laughed. You've got to be ruthless enough not to do it again, right? Because if they didn't laugh the first time, they're unlikely to laugh the second. And just, you know, how you structure things and, you know, and I had to relearn all of that when it came to public speaking, which, uh, uh, which it took me a long time to... I mean, I always say to people going into politics, I mean, my first public speech was actually when I was the by-election candidate in Beaconsfield in May 1982. And I was asked to go and give a speech in, in this big hall, which sat about 1,500 people. And I spent, honestly, I spent a week writing the speech. I mean, I was so sort of focused on it. And I went into the hall, and there was, there was seating for 1,500, and there were actually six people. <laughs> there were six people in the front row, just like that. And I didn't have the, you know, I didn't have the confidence or anything to be flexible enough to put my speech away, so I just kind of read it. Can you see so many people here today? Right. <laughs> All I remember is, uh, after about 20 minutes, just glancing up, and person number six at the end of the row falling fast asleep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, I'm never going to do this. <laughs> when you were doing stand-up then, what sort of material would you do? Because everyone can remember some of their early material. Oh, God, I did some terrible stuff. No, it's too embarrassing. Uh, I used to do skits on TV shows. <laughs> <laughs> I did skits on TV shows. Yeah. Um, did one on Star Trek that was <laughs> that was memorably awful. Uh, and then I did. I actually we did, we did some material and did some some, some actual sort of jokes, but they were ah, they just weren't funny enough. Really. <laughs> so what 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 was the subject matter? So TV skits, and then what would what would be in your? Oh, I only did jokes. You know, they'd be the type of jokes you'd tell, I guess. But back, for that time, but you know. Yeah. So they're obviously a lot cleaner. That <laughs> was back in the day. Do you remember any specific bits of material? <laughs> I, I actually, the truth is, I do remember a lot of the material, but I am not going to disclose it. <laughs> just one bit, just uh, one bit. Can no, I gave you Star Trek, that's enough. <laughs> so what did that involve? Would you dress up or...? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a terrible feeling I was a character called Captain Kink. (laughs) 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 And that really, that is, you're not getting any more of that. That rich vein of embarrassment, yeah. What was it it kind of like a saucy take on No, as I say, I mean, if there'd been social media, I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> they just put that on there as the Tory party political broadcast and that would be <laughs> me off and put in Jeremy. <laughs> so Captain Kink would sort of what? Time to move on. <laughs> but would you wear like a thing? <laughs> That's incredible. So, do you, I mean, you obviously, I understand why you don't want to sort of. Uh, yeah. And I, and I you know, I, this yeah. material I've had in the, well, material I've got now that I'm ashamed of. Um, <laughs> but do you still occasionally sort of drift off and remember stuff like that? No, I do occasionally uh, think of, of, you know, what, what would be amusing <laughs> sketches today and things. Because, you, you know, if you, if you, 
if you're that way inclined to do yeah. you do. But no, that's, I think we should move on really now. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'll make other embarrassing revelations to you. It was always, I remember reading Alistair Campbell's book, and he, he said that you were a very good mimic and that you were good at sort of doing certain accents and voices. Were there any of your colleagues that you could sort of take off? Um, there were, yeah, there were, <laughs> there were a few, but it was the, the foreign leaders were, were more. <laughs> More King Street. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... Because the, the, the thing is about the, the, the meetings that you have at an international level, I mean, obviously, the, the subject matter is incredibly serious, um, but, you know, they, they also can be... I mean, they can be rather tedious at a certain level, and therefore your mind drifts to... <laughs> to looking at your yeah. colleagues and analyse them and think about them. So who are the ones, because Berlusconi you had a, a level of relationship with, you know, not in the sort of, not in the Captain King sort of way. <laughs> <laughs> He'd have been perfect for that sketch, actually. <laughs> um, well, he's, I mean, but he, he used to make the meetings lively. I mean, that's what would be uh, <laughs> uh, interesting about it. And, um, and also, you know, it, it's... I remember once we, we did a, we had some big European debate and it was about the creation of something called the European Food Standards Agency. And we started off, which is obviously to do with food safety and so on. And, and so we started off in this debate and Sylvia hadn't come in. So he comes in late and he hears this thing about food standards. And we were suggesting setting this thing up in Finland. So his hand goes up, no, no. Not, not true. Finland, no. <laughs> <laughs> we have the mortadella, we have the parmigiana, we have the pasta, we have the montepulciano. <laughs> so, no, Sylvia, it's about food safety. It's not, I mean, so he had thought this was about cuisine. <laughs> and couldn't believe we were about to set this thing up in, in, uh, in Finland. Um, which actually became, because... Uh, a little bit later, when, the, when we did the Olympic bid mm. in, in 2005, one of the, the things that actually allowed us to get the Olympic bid was a very close vote. And there were two things, actually. One were, was, I think, um, the Italy voted with us, which was important. I don't know, but I think they did. Um, but the other thing was, was that we had this, this great sort of meeting in Singapore where we all came to lobby for, for our respective countries. And as you remember, London was against Paris. And Jacques Chirac, who was the president of France, turned up and lobbied, obviously, strongly for Paris. But in the course of which, whilst he was sort of making derogatory comments about London, said about Britain, you can't go to Britain because they're that food is terrible, it's is almost as bad as Finland. <laughs> so anyway, I then got the Finnish president on the phone <laughs> saying, you know, my country has been insulted by this. <laughs> and, you know, I was kind of sitting there thinking, yeah, well, I mean, but honestly, Finland. <laughs> anyway, I said, no, I think it's monstrous. This is uh, an insult to you. We are in full solidarity with the Finnish people. Uh, <laughs> it's quite important. Um, Your relationship with George W. Bush always struck me as, and I mean this great respect, quite a comical relationship. Two quite, you know, two funny people in, in high-powered positions. I imagine it looked like, as well as being very serious, and it was a very serious time, obviously. Actually, your personal relationship was very good, and then 
it felt quite informal. Yeah, well, he, he was completely in, informal as a, as a person. And he was also, look, it's very hard to ask when you um, support President Bush in certain quarters, obviously. Um, but uh, he was somebody who, I mean, I felt I was knew if he gave an undertaking to do something, it, 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 it would be done. And he was, he was in a way, you know, what people always say they want, but then are terrified when they get, which is someone who actually just speaks his mind. Um, and I remember the very first G8 um, summit that he did when he, when he was president. And I was, I, I'd already been prime minister um, a few years by then. And we were all sitting around at these G8 summits. You've got the, the G8 countries, but you've also obviously got um, the president of the European Union, whichever country has the presidency at that time. So the presidency was, was held by Belgium at the time. And I remember um, um, uh, George came in literally right on, on time. And we had a debate about climate change and the Belgian prime minister um, went into this great um, rhetorical flourish about how, you know, America had to take a lead on climate change and thought this was the right thing for President Bush to do at the beginning of his presidency and the best way to do this was to triple gasoline prices um, in America, which would make him, you know, a hero in many parts of um, <laughs> Belgium. <laughs> and, <laughs> George Salina is and he says, uh, who in the hell is this guy? <laughs> well, he's... He said that a lot about, about a lot of world leaders. <laughs> he said he's the prime... He's the, I said he's the, he's, the, he's the prime minister of Belgium. He said, Belgium's not a member of the G8. <laughs> I said, no, no, but, but um, Belgium's got the presidency of the EU. And he said to me, you got the Belgians running Europe. <laughs> this was, <laughs> so, you know, most leaders would have pretended that they knew everything that was happening there. Because but... <laughs> I remember, I think the first joint press conference, or one of the first joint press conferences you did, when they asked, you know, what's this Labour Prime Minister having um, come on with a Republican president? I think he said, we both use Colgate. Does <laughs> he both use the same toothpaste? Yeah, that was a stunner. That was. A... <laughs> I can truly say there aren't many occasions. I, I mean, I, I literally I remember him saying that and thinking, "What the hell do I say? <laughs> and what does it mean?" <laughs> it just sort of suggested that you sort no, of both put pajamas was... on at the same time and sort of. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a worry. So uh, yeah, no, that was that was. <laughs> anyway. What was your initial reaction when he won? Because obviously you had a very, very close relationship with Bill Clinton. You know now Gore through that relationship. Ideologically, you were closer to Gore. Bush wins. A lot of the people in the Labour Party in this country thought, bloody hell, this is, this is awful. What was your initial reaction when you saw the Bush had won? Well, my initial reaction was obviously, I'd, I'd, you know, I'm a Democrat in that sense, so I wanted, I was wanted Gore to, to, to win. So, um, But I was, uh, you have to adjust fast and realize it's the president of the United States of America, it's the job of the British Prime Minister to have a good and strong relationship. Because there are so many things that go on in the world in which that relationship matters. And 
where Britain increases its influence and its power if that relationship is strong. So, I mean, frankly, you know, there's not much point once the, 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 the decision was taken. And if you remember, there was all that uncertainty before it, uh, it, it, it finally emerged. Then, you know, I, I made it my uh, business to get over and see him as fast as possible and try and establish working relationship. Because so I was always rumoured when he <coughs> stood against Kerry in his second, that he was sort of actually privately rooting for, or even maybe publicly sort of rooting for him to win the second time. No, I mean, I, I, was, I kept right out of the election. Actually, I have a great respect for John Kerry, and I, I would never hide the fact, and I never do when I'm in the US, that I'm, you know, I'm on the Democrat side. Um, but obviously we'd established a very close working relationship, and it's, it's, never a, it's never a smart idea to get into somebody else's politics in that, in that way. Um, uh, you know, if you're, especially when it's a presidential campaign, you know, whoever emerges from it, you're gonna end up having to, to work with. And it's a, it's a, one of the things that's interesting about, I always think about politics at that very high level, is that it's no different from politics at the very lowest level. In other words, it's about... Bollards. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry? Speed humps, um, traffic cones and all that. I mean, that's politics no, at the low level. Right, but it's, it's, the same, it's the same chemistry or lack of it amongst people. It's the same, you know, if you're in a meeting, even if you're the community centre committee that's running it, uh, you know, it's the same dynamic. There's the person that always doesn't know when to shut up. There's the person who's <laughs> aggressive. There's the person who sits quiet. And there's the person who is influential that you need to get to know and to, to work with if you want to influence the outcome. And it's literally the same at an international level. And, you know, the personal relationships between leaders are really, really important. And, you know, I would say it's, it's also very much like friendships. So one thing that I always found was really important with the leaders I was working with, whether the presidents of the United States or um, you know, leaders in Europe, is you've got to s stick by them in difficult times because that's when the friendship or the partnership is forged. And so if you're prepared when things are really difficult, and for example, when President Clinton was in difficulty, I was always absolutely 100%. I mean, I was totally committed to him as an individual and as a person, but it was also important because that's the moment at which that relationship then consolidates, and when you need something for your country and you're approaching that person, then you're approaching them in a frame of mind where the person's wanting to you know, reach back out to you. And that's really important that you, you, one of the things about politics as well, I think, is that people do respect you if you stick by what you believe in. You know, even if they don't necessarily agree with it, they prefer to see a leader stand up and I know this is what I, what I feel whenever I'm seeing a politician on the TV, if I think... Any in particular? Um, no, but I think it's... There's nowhere in particular I would say that about, but I think when you... You know, I always say the time you should trust the politician most is when they're telling you what you least want to hear. Because unless they're an idiot, they worked out what you want to hear, but they're deciding to tell you something different. Whereas a lot of what passes for sort of authenticity in politics is people just telling people what they want to hear, which is <laughs> the easiest thing to do. And you know, the test for the leader is when they stand up and say no to people who are their supporters. And at that moment, you, you, I think you, you pivot to a different type of leadership. But you were accused when you first became leader of the Labour Party of being quite populist and, and saying to people what they would want to hear. I mean, do you, do you, is that a fair assessment of where you were, say, 94 to 97? And did you change as a leader, do you think? 
Yeah, no, I think it's a fair assessment, and it did change. But it, I mean, you know, my, my excuse in the sense was, you know, after 18 years, I was quite keen to to please all of the people all of the time. <laughs> um, and by the end of the time I left, I wasn't sure I was pleasing any of the people any of the time. But, but it, it, you know, that that is that's what where you have to graduate to, you know, especially if you become the leader of of a country, because the decisions are important and. In the end, what you owe people, your responsibility is to do what you think is right. What you may be wrong, by the way, but you should do what you think is right. And I think today in politics as well, when I first came in in 1997, in economic and in international policy terms, um, the answers seemed pretty clear. You know, in economic terms, you ran basically a, um, a fairly liberal market economy. You know, you took the decisions as we talk about Bank of England independence and so on, you you kept to basic fiscal rules. The thing seemed to run along pretty well. Okay, that was the international economy. And in international policy was the end of the Cold War. Um, you know, you had you had a, a new world order as you thought emerging. You've got to be careful saying that online, man. <laughs> the new world order, like the fact that you've said that now, when this goes out as a podcast, we'll just have like a million conspiracy theorists going Crackers. It's sort of David Icke. You're going, to, you're going to unlock now. Well, I mean, a lot of people are going to download this as a result, which is great. But you know, the, the fact that you've, you've, you've you ever—I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt you on, on such an important train of thought, but no, no, go right ahead. I'm sure you. I'm sure you got a lot of insights. When it comes to sort of conspiracy, I'm about to give you my big theory of politics. Then. <laughs> Conspiracy theories and things about about events on, on numerous levels. Just, I mean, I'm sure there's no Illuminati and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> but just for the benefit of the tape, in terms of this sort of idea that you know the people have, and I, it's obviously not shared by me, but some people sort of do believe that there is a sort of elite, the Bilderberg Group, and all that sort of nonsense, and, and which genuinely exists. But this idea that sort of life is out of the public's hands and there's nothing they can do to affect it. Do you think there's any truth to that? That just a very narrow band of powerful people that control... Yeah, that is just total rubbish. I mean, honestly... It's... Yeah, I thought so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, because it's not... By the way, if there was some actual governing conspiracy... Um, you know, well, it might be quite a good idea if it was the right conspiracy, but if, if there was... To have some... No, sorry, I know. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to up the listening figures, but... Um, no, there, there, is, there is no... It's not the way modern politics can work, by the way, and it's never worked like that. And one of the things... You, know, you often have this conversation with people about the American system, and they say, you know... There's, there's the American system thinks this or the American system. The American system thinks lots of different things at the same time, um, usually in divergent from each other. So, you know, what there, there is at a, at a top international level, obviously, is you, you decide policy with people. But in today's world, in any event, if there were some great conspiracy, you'd never keep it quiet for a minute. I mean, I used to, you used to have to deal with these conspiracy theories all the time when you were in government, and it's, it's a distraction from accepting politics for what it is, which is actually a hard business of decision-taking in circumstances where either choice may be difficult. And because people don't want to accept that, 
they want to say, well, you know, there's conspiracies driven people this way, or there's this easy answer. You know, what I was <laughs> going to say was, you know, what in 97 seemed simple, post 9-11, and then post the financial crisis is suddenly really tough. And the, the, the answers are tough. And so when political leaders are falling short, it's not because they're bad people. It's because they are ordinary human beings in extraordinary circumstances, trying to decide what's, what's right most of the time. I mean, sure, there's self-interest and vested interests and so on, but most people I know who go into politics go in basically because they're trying to make the world better. And, and if, they, if they take decisions that are wrong or, or you don't agree with, it's, it's not necessarily because they're badly motivated. It just could be because they see the world differently. Of all those decisions of yours that, that probably best encapsulates that, that, uh, that principle is, is Iraq uh, and, and the judgment that you've faced for it since. Um, there's a lot of pressure on you at the moment, obviously, with, with Chilcot coming up to sort of make some sort of apology. Or I mean, do, you, do you feel any sort of pressure to, to change what you've said in the past now? No, I don't feel pressure to do that, but I, I understand there's you know, powerful disagreements about what I did, but that is a classic example of what I'm talking about, which is in the end you, you take a decision and you take it on the basis of which you think it's right. And I think particularly when you're dealing with issues of, of war and peace, that is your obligation. And if people disagree with you, it's their right, by the way, to put you out of government. Um, but I think when it comes to those big literally life and death decisions, you've got to do what you instinctively feel to be correct. And I think as you can see now with the whole range of decisions over Syria, these things are incredibly difficult and very unpredictable. Because that's the other thing. Up until 9-11, things were reasonably predictable in foreign policy terms. You know, that you may have problems in one part of the world or another. But since then, and since everything that's happened um, from that moment, you know, those decisions and the decisions now that leaders are taking, they're difficult. But in terms of the personal pressure on you at the time to, to make the right decision, whatever that is, did you feel that acutely around the time? Of course, absolutely, because you, you're, you're conscious that, that people's lives depend on it. So, yeah, absolutely. You, 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 I mean, that is where you have to, I think, un unless there's something really... Um, you know, really wrong with your approach to the whole job. It's at moments like that you have got to do what you think is right. And as I say, if people then disagree with you afterwards, it's their right to put you out. I mean, that's, that's democracy. But I don't, you know, there are lots of issues in politics where you can trim and, you know, swerve and maneuver and so on. But when it comes to those types of decisions, especially when they're binary, you've got to do what you think is right. How do you deal with then the, the, the legacy, not so much of uh, Iraq as a country, but the legacy in terms of your reputation uh, and the, the tone in which the opposition is now framing things? Um, does that affect you personally? Well, it's not pleasant when you're abused personally, but on the other hand, I think when you do one of these jobs, you've got to come to the following type of... Um, um, position in your own mind, really, uh, which is to say it's an enormous privilege to have done a job like that. I was Prime Minister for 10 years. It's a huge privilege to do it. Um, you do it to the best of your ability. People can make their judgments upon it. Um, but in the end, you, should, you shouldn't get so upset by criticism or abuse that you don't recognize the great privilege that you've had in doing it. And I think you just, you've, 
you know, it's a, it's a funny thing with politics. When, when you get to the very top, um, and you know, politicians, even more than most normal people, as it were, um, you know, like to be liked. Um, but when you get to the very top, and especially if you stay there for any real length of time, you realize that's not possible. So in the end, you, you've got to, as I say, you've got to be content within yourself that you did the job to the best of your ability. And then think, well, okay, there may be all this criticism and abuse, but on the other hand, what a privilege it is to have, to have been there and to, to have um, had the honor of leading your country. But with, with Chilcock coming out whenever it does, um, do you, does part of you think, oh, God, I'm going to have to go through all this all over again? Um, no, I think <clears throat> most of me thinks it's an opportunity to, to also to set the record straight and to make arguments. So at this stage, I mean, obviously you can't preempt the inquiry, but feel free to if you want. Um, <laughs> are, you, <laughs> are you sort of broadly aware of what he's going to say about you? Um, I don't, it's probably best not to get into that report at all. So, you know, because it's, it, they've got to make their judgments and let's wait and see what they are. In terms, uh, and you, you mentioned Syria there, and this is the sort of big issue of the day, and I think it'd be sort of interesting to pick your brains about it. What is your view then of, of how Britain should approach Syria now? Well, I would support the position that's been set out, not just by David Cameron, but by many um, Labour MPs. I think it's important that we take strong action against ISIS and take that action um, against them where they're headquartered, which is in Syria. So um, obviously I would support that. But um, you know, this is a long, going to be a long, hard struggle, not just against ISIS in in Syria, but you've got, you know, you've got ISIS, you've got Jabhat al-Nusra, you've got al-Qaeda, uh, you've got al-Shabaab, you've got Boko Haram, you've got these groups that have proliferated all over the world, and this is the biggest security challenge of the 21st century, for sure. Um, and it's going to take a long time to defeat it, and you have to defeat a number of different levels. And one of the things I do in my um, post-prime ministerial life is my foundation um, actually tracks um, the interaction between religion and extremism. And so we have a center for religion and geopolitics that every day publishes and tracks what's happening across the world on this issue. And it's a global threat today. Just in terms of Syria, and I don't want to dwell on it too long, but I think a lot of people would support action against ISIS. A lot of people would say but Assad needs some form of uh, action as well. I mean, in terms of Brit British intervention, would it be purely airstrikes and ISIS, do you think, or, or should there be some sort of military intervention towards Assad? Well, the, the issue in respect of, of Assad is whether um, he is going to be uh, forced out over a period of time um, because the majority of people in the country who have been excluded from government and who've now been subject to this absolutely brutal campaign where over 300,000 people have lost their lives and roughly 10 million people have been displaced, you're going to have to come to a, um, a settlement over Syria that even if there may be a transitional period, ends up with a new constitution and a new, dis um, a new government within the country because otherwise it won't be acceptable to the people there. So we've also got, if you want to, to exercise influence in that regard, you've also got to be prepared to, to be committed there too. Do you ever, I mean, I know you're a man of faith and it was, you know, Alistair Campbell famously said that you don't do God, but um, I, I don't think he works for you anymore, so presumably it's fine. Um, 
Do you ever have your faith tested by the sort of events that you see in Paris or by any, any other sort of atrocity? No, because I think religion throughout the, the ages has always had the capacity to do great good or do great evil. And, you know, the Christianity went through a period when it was slaughtering people in the, in the, um, in the name of, of Jesus Christ. So it, it's, this is not, you know, religion has always had that capability. Now, what I often argue against people who are sort of anti-religious is to say, but so have secular ideologies, um, communism and fascism. Uh, it caused millions of deaths in the, in the 20th century. But religion's always had that you know, but there's also people who their religion um, inspires them to do acts of enormous human compassion. So what you should never do, though, I think, is politicize religion. And I believe in a concept of faith that is open-minded, right? So that the key in the world today, where people of different faiths and cultures are coming together more than ever before, is that you are tolerant and respectful of difference. And you regard diversity as a strength. It's one of the reasons why I think it's so important in countries like ours that we're not, don't become anti-immigrant. Um, I mean, immigration has given this country enormous benefits. And actually, I think one of the great things about a city like London today is it's a multicultural city. It's proud of it. People get on together across the boundaries of faith and culture. And this is the way the world is. And I like that. I mean, I, so, Immigration is at the heart, not just of, to an extent, UKIP's appeal, but may well, next year in the EU referendum, play a major part in the, in the debate on whether Britain stays or, or leaves the EU. Are you going to get involved in the campaign at all? Well, I, I'll, you know, I will get involved in it. Um, how much, I don't know. I mean, I'll get involved as much as it's helpful, as it were. But um, knock, a few, knock a few doors. <laughs> <laughs> that should be interesting. Um, um, but, you know... Um, it's it's a it's one of these it's one of these things where if we take a step back from any of the immediate concerns, and I think there will be a lot of concerns about the issue of refugees, um, but if you take a step back, I mean, in the 21st century, for us to break apart from what is the largest political alliance and biggest commercial union in the world, I would be just I mean, my my view would be very foolish and retrograde step for the country. So I think it's important we stay in there but, and, and argue our case for reform and change inside. Do you think with, with the way, how much politics has changed just in the last year, that actually um, when the Labour Party starts to reassess its position and people maybe reassess old rivalries, because Gordon Brown started to pop up once in a while, hasn't he? You know, he's popped up to the referendum and he popped up the other day. Um, is there, any, is there any chance, do you think, that the two of you might sort of do some sort of some joint events to sort of try and heal the Labour Party or, or campaign to keep Britain in the EU? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't object to that at all, actually. Um, no, of course, I mean, and I, despite all the differences and difficulties, I still have a huge um, respect for him. Um, and I think it, there is a moment when people should try and come together. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you, you know, whatever the other issues are that you may disagree about, this is, this is going to be one of the biggest decisions this country's taken um, in the last half century. But have recent events sort of maybe made you rethink your relationship with Gordon? Has actually not been that <laughs> different? Or is it, is it, in a bizarre way, is the, the situation the Labour Party is in sort of quite healing for Blairites and Brownites, do you think? I mean, it should be in, in the sense that 
there's obviously such a, a huge challenge to make the Labour Party electable again, and uh, it should bring people together from whatever previous quarter they were in. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever chat to each other, email or text or anything like that? Um, no, I talk to him from time to time and, and see him from time to time, but, um, you know, he's, he's very busy with what he's doing, I'm busy with what I'm doing, I guess, but, but I, I've got, no, I, I would not, of course not, if there's, if there's a common cause to be made on something we both believe in, why not? And, you know, you shouldn't also, I don't, I, I don't really, I think with politics, it, it, it does create these incredible tensions. But sometimes, you know, when, when you take a step back, you see they're not, you, know, you shouldn't allow them to, to, to contaminate a personal relationship or a personal regard, even if you have that disagreement. Because you were, you were mates for years. Yeah. You came at the same time, you shared an office. Like, do you sometimes... I mean, there are people I've worked with when I thought, I shouldn't have fallen out with them. Like, do you ever sit there and think, <laughs> maybe I'll just pick up the phone and maybe ask Gordon if he fancies going for a pint or something like that? Well, it's not quite like that. But, <laughs> um, uh, but, no, we were very close, and he taught me an enormous amount about politics, actually. Um, a huge amount, and I, I learned a lot from him, and, and actually our intellectual cooperation in the 80s, because we spent, we used to spend hours and days together drafting, redrafting, thinking through things. It's a really important thing to be able to do. The only advantage of opposition is it gives you space and time to think. And, and you know, one of the things, if I was in the Labour Party and a, you know, younger person in the Labour Party today, I would be spending a lot of my time just thinking through what are the right answers. Because one thing that allowed us to get into power and then to, to, to win those elections was that we had an intellectual orientation that had been worked out over a long period of time. And you need to do that. I mean, politics at a certain, le- a certain level is a very crude sort of business. At another level, it's, it's actually very, um, it's quite intellectual. You know, and these issues are difficult to resolve. You know, it's one of the things I've, I think um, people don't sufficiently understand about the business of government and politics is that the answers to the questions are difficult and you're having to decide those answers in an atmosphere, particularly today with social media, which is really, it's like a wall of noise that you're dealing with the whole time. And people, I think, find it very, um, you, you know, very disorienting. Because when I was starting in politics, right, 10,000 people thought something or wrote something. You think, God, oh, I'm part of a movement here, right? Nowadays, you get hundreds of thousands of people coming to a particular position. And I think people get quite disoriented by it. Um, but, you know, it doesn't, Necessary, you see, so 400,000 people think something that could represent 40 million, it could represent 4 million, or actually it could represent just over 400,000. Now, which of those things it is is really important to know. But if you're in that 400,000 group, you're, sent, you're thinking, my God, the, the world's been cha- changed by me. So, in terms of social media, it's interesting you mention that because your offices are on, on social media, but as far as I'm aware, you don't have a personal. Sort of Twitter account or something like that. Is it something you've considered? Briefly. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's partly. No, I, I do sometimes think I should do it, but on the other hand, once you start it, you've got to carry on. And then, you know, frankly, if you're me, you'll get a certain amount of, let's say, traffic. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't, 
<laughs> you know, I was, but you know, people, uh, it, it shouldn't really, I mean, that's not really the reason for not doing it. It's just a question of the discipline and the time. But, you know, you were asking about criticism earlier, and I know because one of my, um, my son, you is here tonight, and, and I always remember when <clears throat> in the 2005 election campaign, and, and um, we, you know, my, my two sons, you and Nicky, my older sons, actually rather surprised and, and <clears throat> delighted me by saying they would come out canvassing. And they went out into a sort of, you know, marginal area and uh, they were going down the street and knocking on doors and I, I was somewhere else in the city centre or something. And um, anyway, um, my son Dickie knocks, knocks on this door and this guy sort of opens the door and he, you know, he just starts a volley of abuse about that Tony Blair, I hate him, I can't stand him, he's the worst, you know, etc. He just goes through the whole thing. So anyway, Nicky's sort of, you know, all right. So the door slams, he, he goes down, he sees Ewan further down the street and he says to him, um, Ewan, you should go and knock on number 18. <laughs> You're a big fan of dads, he's like, I'll cheer you up. <laughs> So, you guys, so, oh, that's good. So he knocks on this door, and the guy sees another level. And so it's an even greater volley of abuse comes in. And Yuna's a little more sensitive than uh, Nicky on these things. Finally says to him, um, Yeah, that's my dad you're talking about there. And the guy says, Oh, I'm really sorry, son. Come and have a cup of tea. You know, and it's that, you know, but most, I think the thing about, the thing is with all of, all of this is that you've got to, you've got to trust people at a profound level, right? And what that means in the social media era is trusting people and not measuring it just by the noise, right? Because the people who shout loudest don't necessarily deserve to be heard most. Now, that's a big lesson in politics, which people have to learn over time. And therefore, even when that wall of noise is kind of disorienting you, you've got to try and keep it to the side of you and focus on what you really think is right for people and your instincts about where, you know, what I call real people, most of whom don't go and voice off their opinions with great um, vigor at the first person they see. <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, right, we'll take some questions now from the audience. So I'm sure we have plenty. If we can ask for... One sentence questions and one sentence answers, if that's okay. So we can just yeah. get around as many as possible because I, I realise it's special. Can have the uh, house lights up, please? Tris will come round with uh, a microphone. Could just have the house lights up. Uh, that would help so we can see people. Um, and hands up. Yes, there's a fellow down here at the front. And just let us know your name and uh, the question. Hello, my name's Russell. Thanks for coming this evening. Your position as a Middle East envoy, what, what achievements, if any, <laughs> yeah, good, good point. What <laughs> uh, one sentence? <laughs> <laughs> well, I kept my own optimism at least alive. <laughs> now, my wife said to me, you know, I, I, um, when I go back there, which I will be, I'll be back there again in, in Jerusalem on Friday, and this will be my 150th visit since leaving oh. office. And she said to me, yeah, but it's not the number of visits you make, it's the progress that counts. <laughs> um, there hasn't been a, a lot, but by the way, there will be and there should be. And the key to it today, in my view, is cooperation between the Israelis and the Arabs. The truth is they've got many 
um, interest in common in the region right now. And I think if we are imaginative with all the changes happening in the region, this is the right moment to drive forward the two-state solution. So I'm going to, and by the way, it doesn't matter how difficult it is, I'm going to keep going at it. So thank you. Thank you. Hi, you said um, as Prime Minister you had to work with the American President. How would you work with President Trump? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God, these are sharp questions. <laughs> I've got President Trump and Captain Kink. The <laughs> <laughs> great slapstick duos. <laughs> by, the, by the way, if he was elected, you'd have to, but I, I think this will not happen, in my view. Um, because I think ultimately, you know, the, the one thing about that American process is that it takes a long time and you kind of think in the end that the more sensible people in the Republican Party will, will prevail. But, you know, it, it's, um, but it's, it is a good question because if that's what happens, that's what happens and you have to work with it. But I, I think this is an unlikely scenario. <laughs> okay, yes, the chap in the middle. <laughs> I get the sense that a lot of time the people in the UK and around the world probably know you for foreign policy things. Um, but I get the sense that you're probably, when you look back on your time in the UK, uh, you're more worried about what you did domestically. What was your greatest achievement domestically in terms of policy around education, health, that sort of thing? What did you really achieve doing that? Right, I mean, I think the Northern Ireland peace process is important in uh, UK terms. Um, I think... The education reforms were, were an important part of what, what we did. And I, I think, you know, having experienced and seen myself London schooling, I think it has significantly improved over, um, over those years. Um, so that was important. I think the minimum wage was important. Um, and I think, you know, there were a whole series of changes we make. I think of, for example, things like civil partnerships, where when I was first coming into politics, you know, that would have been seen as completely lunatic type of politics, and now it's part of the consensus. And, you know, I, I think there is a certain changes that we brought about because we were able to govern over time that then impacted even the, the Conservative Party. So, yeah. No, I, I agree. I, 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 think, I, think, I think it made a huge difference coming in and having many shows. Thank you. Yes, the chap at the back. Well, I think he's from the Free United Kingdom Party. Yeah. <laughs> we disbanded. <laughs> you only got me 318 votes. <laughs> it's in the place, sir. It's in the place, sir. Um, uh, well, you touched on it earlier. Um, do you have any advice for any Prime Minister perhaps dealing with uh, an ambitious Chancellor? <laughs> <laughs> Probably hang on in there as long as you can. <laughs> but by the way, it's never, I mean, I, you know, it's not a, an ignoble ambition to, be, to want to be Prime Minister. So that's part of politics. Hi, I just wanted to ask a question about, as a Labour member, I'm a bit depressed about 2020. What do you think Jeremy Corbyn, or indeed the party, needs to do to get back in power? Um, it needs to um, understand the modern world. Uh, as it really is, um, it needs to realise that the Labour Party, um, at its best, has always been a project for social justice, but a project that is a modernising project, um, that is taking the country forward. 
and it's it's got to have the it, it's got to have the, the as I said earlier it's got to have the discipline to be prepared to to take the decisions necessary to put ourselves in the position both in terms of policy and and how we are and seem as a political party that chime with with the instincts and aspirations of the people and you know the Labour Party if it it's not you know, we, we, we got into this position in the 1980s and when I became leader and we'd had these four election defeats where people, people used to think there's some bizarre reason why we can't win. Maybe we just can't win. I mean, it's just impossible. And it's, it was always nonsense. It was perfectly possible, provided we realised that the problem the British people usually has with the Labour Party is not whether it's believes in social justice and in a more caring and fairer society. Most people understand that's what the Labour Party's about, and most people believe that's what the Labour Party's about. Their worry is always on the other side of the ledger. Are you going to be tough enough, smart enough? Are you going to take the difficult decisions? And are you going to understand how the world's changed? And this is why it's so important today for the Labour Party. What I would do is I'd spend an enormous amount of thought time. You know, do you, you know we mentioned technology earlier. This whole new generation of technology around big data and so on, maybe even artificial intelligence, other things, it's going to transform the world of work. It's going to completely revolutionize the world of work. We've got to have the answers to that. You know, so that's what we should be doing. We should be thinking. But you know, thinking is a far more difficult and profound activity than just dusting off an old resolution from the 1980s and passing it and thinking we've created anything, because in fact, all we've created is our own illusion. So this is why it's really, really important, I think, today, I don't, and by the way, I would never get depressed about the Labour Party in that sense, I'm sure there's enough vigour and determination within it to overcome this situation, but we've got to be real, really, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm in there, I'm battling away. <laughs> um, you know, we've got to, we just, it, it makes me frustrated when we, we don't understand that if, if you want to grasp that political prize of being able to govern the country, you've got to have the, the wherewithal, the courage, the vision, the creativity to do what is not just right, but right even in difficult circumstances and right in the modern world as it is, not the world as you might want it to be. So that is the... The key, and you've got to recognize that to do that, you've got to build a political coalition, which is there. You know, the political coalition is not difficult. There are lots of people who want, they want to properly run economy. They want a government that is, that looks after the business and enterprise sector, but is also committed to social justice, committed to change, committed to bringing about a fair and more free society. Look, this is what the Labour Party has always been about when it's won. And it'll be about this when it next wins. And the question is, how long does it take to get from here to there? Longer than one sentence. No, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> are there any other people around here that like to ask questions? Yes, the lady at the front. Can the Labour Party ever win when there's a right-wing media? Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, look, it's the, 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 the media is often biased against the Labour Party. It's true. But it always has been. Um, and, you know, the media don't always have the power that we give to them. Or maybe they have only the power that we give to them. 
So if we are prepared to think for ourselves, and I think a lot of, I think most people are ultimately, I think the, the hosti hostility of the media is a problem, but it should never be a disability. Okay, there are there any people up on the balcony? I need the house lights on the balcony, please, because I can't see through the... Uh... Oh, there's a balcony, right. Oh, there's a balcony. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there anyone up there that would like to ask Christian? Was that you there? Yeah. People are going to have to indicate clearly. I can't see. Was there anyone on the balcony? That... Can we just have the house lights on the balcony, please? Is that all right? I just can't see people. I don't want people to lose out. Is there anyone up there that... Just yell if you would like to. <coughs> yeah? So we, we'll get a microphone up there. There is a phone up there. It's... Is there a position where... Just, hold, just wait for the microphone. Oh, there we go. Hello. Cheers. Hi. Um, with the renewal of Trident, is there a position you would have seen where you would have pushed that big button? <laughs> <laughs> that is actually genuinely a question you should never answer. Um, but I fortunately would never... Came into a situation where that was ever likely to to happen, and uh, I hope to goodness it doesn't. But the essence of a deterrence is that that, that uncertainty is always there. But would Captain Kink request <laughs> <laughs> this special big button? He had, <laughs> he had other weapons at his disposal. <laughs> I can't think of a better note to end on. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, you've all been absolutely superb. Um, every month we try and bring you the, uh, the best guests that we possibly can. And I, I really respect the fact that people here will have had different ideological opinions, different personal beliefs. Uh, and as always, you, you've been a fantastic audience in listening to someone uh, and, and showing them the utmost respect. It's really important for, just for the sake of this night and for politics in general that people are heard in this manner. So I really, really appreciate you all being on board. I'm really sorry I couldn't announce that it was Tony before tonight. I hope you understand that. Uh, and in future, whenever that's the case, it's because we do have a special guest. Tony's agreed to do this annually now, I think. Tony. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks very much indeed. You've been a very kind audience. Ladies and gentlemen, Tony. Well, the line I always remember from that is Captain Kink. And uh, what, a, what an absolute treat that he gave me that. What an exclusive to get from a former Prime Minister. Um, I hope you're enjoying this replay series. It's so cool going back through the back catalogue. Almost like going back and listening to old albums and things. Um, so I hope you're getting as much pleasure from it as I am. Uh, please do leave a five-star written review. And as always, tell your friends, spread the word on social media. And I'll see you next time. Ta-ra. Ta-ra.